The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockets, quit trying to pass off that USB waffle iron as a grid computer and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 259 with guest Dan Cerulli, recorded live Thursday, July 26th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now, bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who agrees with the wisdom of... If at first you don't succeed, call it beta. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here uh, finishing up my trip in Vancouver with Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Hey, sir. I hope you've been having a good time here. I have had a great time here. Um, mostly working in your office, but it was it's been fun. The family's had a good time. Um we are coming up on a momentous event, which is the wedding of Kimberly Tripp and Paul Randall, a Microsoft match made in heaven, if there ever was one. <laughs> I, I think that was really a sequel synergy is what that actually oh, is. Oh, very good. And, you know, we had them on the show before, which is when they announced their engagement. Indeed. So, uh, again, some great people are going to be at the wedding, and we're going to pull them aside and try to get some shows out of it. Brian Randall's going to be there. I know uh, Tim Huckabee's going to be there. Yes. Uh, is Forte going to be there? No, he can't make it, but Michelle Arubustamante will be there. Busta, Busta, Busta. Yes. Very, very cool. Who else is going to be there that you know oh, that you man. know of? I don't know of any other. I'm sure there'll be more. Those are the ones gotta I know about. Well, the reason that I know those ones is that I'm the MC for the wedding, mostly because <laughs> they, they want me to keep those folks under control for their speeches. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's the only names I know are the ones that are going to be giving speeches. And you look at that list, it's a pack of troublemakers is what yeah. it is. Well, it should should make some great shows, and it won't be fluffy either. We'll get some good content out you of bet. these guys. But uh, we will be doing the shows at the barbecue the night before the wedding. Of so course. that should be fun. Okay, time for this little segment we like to do to... Keep everybody uh, edumacated about the .NET framework. It's called Better Know a Framework. Don't you just love it? Okay. What do you got for me, Mr. Franklin? This, uh, today's class is not a class at all, but oh. an attribute. Oh. Attributes, for those who don't know, are these little uh, things that you can decorate on an existing class without changing the type of the class in any way, um, except that it, uh, that it has those attributes. So there's sort of like a way that you can inject functionality into a class without really disturbing it. And, right. Uh, uh, this one is the browsable attribute class, which is, well, okay, it's a class, but it's an attribute class. And it's in system component model. And what you use this for is to uh, specify whether a property or an event should be displayed in the properties window. Oh. So you're building a component, 
and you have something that has a property and you want it to have that property, but you don't necessarily, it's not really appropriate that the property shows up in the properties window. Right? Like maybe it's a connection to some other object that's in memory, something that you just could not uh, display. Yeah, it's not going to show in a meaningful way. It's not editable in the the property window. So you put this uh, attribute uh, on your properties and then you basically set a set a value and go to town. There it is. So simple one today, system.componentmodel.browsable attribute. Richie, you got an email for us? I do indeed. And this one that's also uh, back from the stack of older emails as I've been combing through everything, pulling together my list of shows for the summer. Uh, this one's from Mark Deason. And I'm going to editorialize a bit because it's lengthy. Okay. Uh, dear Carl and Richard, after finishing episode 232 with Jeff Atwood, I wanted to share some relevant thoughts inspired by Jeff's discussion about Joel Spolsky. Oh, yes. One of the major points conveyed from this discussion is that Joel still has tremendous things to say despite his seemingly incomprehensible wasabi issue. (laughs) Yeah. Simply put, in programming or our daily lives, we all sometimes do things that aren't consistent with what you claim to be about or promote. We're compelled as developers to do what must be done. Right. (laughs) Whether it must be done or not. So he was digging into the whole angle around, uh, you know, why, how you get involved and get engaged in DNR. And he was talking about uh, being a tech ed 2006 in Boston. And he saw my SQL querying talk. And then he talked to a lot of other folks about DNR. So he started listening. So this is sort of a feedback on yeah. this. And he said, after listening to show 182 with Dan Cerulli on grid computing, I was hooked since I had spent considerable time at TechEd Boston learning about Compute Cluster, only to have something very relevant hit me like that first time out of the bag. So the funny part about this, of course, is that this introduction is actually for the show, the new show on Dan Cerulli. And it's purely coincidental that I pulled this email out and found here's a guy who who really got hooked on DNR from listening to Dan the first time, and here we are back with Dan more than a year later, and grid computing is that much more advanced, and so is computing clusters as well. Excellent. And uh, Mark ends off with, thank you for helping expand my knowledge base while making it entertaining and being the show I listen to on my morning rides. Yes, I'm an avid .NET Rock cyclist. You folks really need to do a jersey for the store, as my older Microsoft jersey is getting way too loose from the two shows a week format, <laughs> plus Hansel Minutes, Run As Radio, etc. Best regards, Mark Deason. Welcome to the Pwop Empire. <laughs> Thanks very much for your email, Mark. And uh, here's more Cerulee goodness for you, too. Yeah, that's right. We're doing a show with Dan right now. Uh, so more Cerulee coming up. But first, I want to just mention that uh, Infusion, our friends in New York City, are always looking for very talented individuals. And uh, if you want to work in Manhattan and live in an apartment rent-free for a year, uh, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6 to learn about that. Also, if you're in the Boston area and you want to work for Infusion, they have openings in the Boston office as well. For that, just give me a shout at uh, carl at franklins.net, and I'll hook you up. All right, Richard, let's welcome back to the show Mr. Dan Cerulli. Dan's an experienced software developer with 16 years of experience developing commercial Windows apps since Windows 2.0. I remember Windows 2.0. He's currently the director of products at Digipede Technologies, where he draws upon his experiences both as a software engineer and as a manager of many enterprise software implementation projects. He was a founder and director of development at Energy Interactive, an energy information systems and services company that developed applications for electric utilities. He also spent a year as a tour manager for a platinum-selling rock band. He holds a bachelor's degree in computer science from UC Berkeley and writes about grid computing windows at westcoastgrid.blogspot.com. Welcome back to the show, Dan. It is great to be here. Thank you very much, Carl. Great to have you back. I, I remember we talked about the rock band thing on the last show. Was it Motley Crue? <laughs> Slightly less known than Motley Crue, but just slightly, just barely. Poison? I can't remember. It was actually in this century. 
in this century. <laughs> yeah, a band called Chevelle. You may you may know them, you may not. Hard rock band called Chevelle. Oh uh, yes, they're the ones that are named after that goat cheese stuff. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> named after that muscle car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, this reminds me of a rock band I was in called Chevette. It's a little, <laughs> little different, but. Did that one explode? Was that an exploding rock band? <laughs> no, that was Pinto. Yeah. Right, right. Pinto. Well, uh, this is, it's good to have you back. The last time we were talking about grid computing with a, a, a .NET tool that Digipede had created. And uh, some very interesting things have happened since then, notably uh, an award that you guys received. What's, what's that all about? Well, we just got back from the Worldwide Partner Conference, the Microsoft Worldwide Partner Conference in lovely Denver, Colorado. Gotta love Denver. It was a great city to visit. They did a very good job hosting 10,000 Microsoft partners. Um, But my favorite part was where they handed us the Innovation Partner of the Year Award. Oh, you gotta like that. Wow, that's awesome. You gotta love it. They have, uh, I I think it's in the neighborhood of 200,000 partners, and about 20,000 are are, uh, software developers, ISVs. Wow. And... um, and they chose little old Digipede as the Innovation Partner of the Year for 2007. And we're still talking about the same grid computing technology that we talked about in the in the previous show, right? Yeah, we we had uh, I think we had just we were on version 1.0 when uh, when I talked to you guys last, probably. And uh, we've done some more stuff, and 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 we've definitely. Uh, gotten an increased customer base that that kind of drew Microsoft's attention. I think. Yeah, it was. It's just over a year ago that we talked to you about grid computing. The product was brand new, and I'm amazed in the past year to see it's not just uh, Digipeed has done a lot, but Microsoft's done a whole bunch in sort of the cluster computing space. All of a sudden, this has become a huge uh, a factor for Microsoft. Yeah, Compute Cluster Server is. Uh, you know, a, a new version of the of the Windows Server 2003 operating system, and it and it really is solidifying the idea that people are doing uh, high performance computing and complex computing on the Windows environment, which is kind of a new concept. Well, tell us a little bit about Compute Cluster Server because this is the first time we've really talked about it on DNR. Oh, it is. I, I didn't realize that Compute Cluster Server is at its heart uh, Windows Server 2003 uh, X64 edition. So they, they took the operating system and they added a few features to it that made it a little better for clusters. And the things they added to it were uh, the ability to use high bandwidth interconnects, you know, put it on InfiniBand and, and the real, the real uh, low latency high bandwidth stuff. The fiber, um, fiber backplane things. All that stuff, yeah. Added support for for several different types of hardware. And they also added the ability to do um, in in scientific computing. People do uh, what they call remote direct memory access. So one machine can actually write directly to the memory of another machine. Uh, it's difficult to write software that does that, but uh, in in scientific computing, if you're doing you know complex airflow over a, over a airplane wing, for example, um, you need you need that sort of, of technical ability. So they added support into the OS for for those kinds of things as well to really enable them to compete against Linux and Unix for the scientific uh, and technical computing slice of the pie. And this is really the alternative to supercomputers, right? And totally owned by the Unix space. And ultimately, I guess the Linux space jumps in there as well. And rather than build, rather than buying the multi-million dollar Cray XMP, I harness a whole bunch of of regular PCs together into a cluster. But for a long time, that was totally the space of academia, and so everything was Unix. That's exactly right. And and if you look at that now, you know, there's a list published every six months called Top 500, which is uh, originally was the top 500 supercomputers in the world. And now almost all of it and everything new, virtually everything new, is a huge cluster. And uh, starting this year, actually, there are, are a few clusters on that list that are running uh, Windows Server 2003, running Compute Cluster Server. And I got to imagine that all these multi-core processors that are coming out are just cranking that pos- the possibilities up way beyond what you know what we thought they might be back when, even when we were talking last time. Well, the, the, yes, the multi-core. All of our customers who are buying new hardware are buying multi-core hardware. But it, it does present its own 
uh, problems. It's certainly a lot more capability. But the, the question always as a developer is how do you use it? How can you take advantage of, of say, you've got four cores on that machine? And what are you going to do that's going to take four cores? How, how are you just going to not leave three of them sitting around idle? Yeah, it certainly, certainly is the problem. And that's something that we've been working hard to address. And, you know, multi-threaded programming technologies are a hack at best. And uh, I, I've even, you know, Richard, I had a, a talk with, uh, a nice talk with Ken Alstad from Strange Loop, your business partner. Yes. Um, about the, the fact that they gave up doing multi-threaded processing altogether. They found that, you know, when you're scaling that many sessions uh, up, it just, it, the overhead is just too much. So they went to like a single-threaded model that just does some really uh, fast switching, context switching within a single thread, and that's actually faster for them. Well, I think the dirty little secret of multi-threaded programming is that no one does it well. And when I say no one, of course, I'm exaggerating. There are some people who do it really well. But I'm a solid 90, 95% of developers cannot write uh, rock-solid re-entrant multi-threaded code. It's just too difficult. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to Kent's point, which I, I didn't hear the conversation, but I know that particular conversation, which is multi-threaded makes sense when you have dozens or even hundreds of simultaneous executions. But when you have tens of thousands, you just break down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and more relevantly, it's as soon as you get past a, a, a point of execution per processor, you're in trouble. You're spending more time churning than you are executing. Yeah, and it's only about like 100 threads or something is the functional limit, I'm, right? I mean, Dan, and, is this and, what we're talking about? if you about? think about it, most machines have many threads running all the time already. Absolutely. So it's not like as a developer you're, you can necessarily run 100 threads simultaneously and, and even get that sort of performance. Yeah. So what we've been trying to do is allow developers to take advantage of those cores, take advantage of the multiprocessor boxes and the multi-core processors without having to get into a multi-threaded uh, environment. And, and as, as you may recall from our, from our last conversation, our, our .NET grid computing model has always been about object-oriented programming for grid. So design right. an object, a single-threaded, you know, a, a .NET class, yes. and we'll take care of moving objects of that class around the grid and executing them. And what the system does now is it detects how many cores are on that system, on, on the, each, each pro computer that's working on the grid. And it can say, I'm a four-core machine. I'm going to grab four of those objects, and I'm going to take four of them and execute them simultaneously. And if, and if one finishes, then I'm going to grab one more. But I'll keep all four of my cores busy that way. So as the developer is still writing single-threaded classes, classes that are executing on one thread, but taking advantage of all the cores on their systems. So it's a very simple model, but it, it makes it very easy for developers to take advantage of, of the many cores that are out there. Dan, do you recall last time we spoke, I think I was talking about using uh, grid computing for uh, video rendering because this is such a, you know, a, a processor-intensive thing that to be able to split up a, uh, a rendering uh, into different chunks according to the different machines and cores that you have working on it would be a good thing. Well, since then, um, Sony Vegas 7, it used to be called Vegas Video, now it's just called Vegas 7, which is a, a really good uh, video production suite and editing suite. This has a, a Windows service that gets installed, and if you have all the licenses, you can run that service on a bunch of different machines, and it'll just use the file share, uh, the you know SharePoint, not not a SharePoint, but a, you know a file share uh -huh, to yeah. to have them all access the same file, and it'll split it up and it'll direct it, and and you can actually get some seriously increased performance. But that's essentially a grid. Oh yeah, it is. In fact, one of our biggest customers is is a company who is called Digital Dimension. They're in, in Hollywood, and they're also in Toronto, Canada. Um, you know, one of those U.S.-Canada partnerships. You guys are familiar with what I'm talking about no, here, right? I have no, no idea. idea what you're talking about. Yeah, completely confusing to me. I'll explain that later. I don't know how that works. But, so anyway, they have, uh, they have about 300 machines, and they, had, and they, do, they do animation for Hollywood. They're, they're one of the, 
not one of the huge, they're not a Lucasfilm kind of, uh, or a Pixar, but they're in that next, in that next tier, but, you know, one of the largest ones of the, of the middle tier. Um, they work on huge, huge movies. Um, and they've got about 300 machines that they use for, for, uh, animation and, and for, they do 2D and 3D rendering. And their problem was every rendering package that they bought had its own kind of grid software, like, like you were describing with Vegas 7. That they, the, their problem was with, in a sense, they had, five different grids or seven different grids, however different rendering packages they had. And they, right. they are now using us as kind of the master control that is taking care of all of the rendering across all their different packages. Huh. So they have one queue, and they can look at the status of their entire grid at once rather than going to all these individual packages. That takes some serious talent. And, and the thing that's great for them is they are unusual in their industry in that they are an all-Microsoft shop. They have really... Uh, really t- bought into the Microsoft stack top to bottom. So, for example, they monitor all of their projects using SharePoint. Every film that they're working on has, you know, a SharePoint site that, that everyone checks in on and that contains all the information. They wanted to be able to use .NET to communicate with their grid system. They wanted to have the, the guy who's managing the project for them open up the SharePoint site and, and look to see how things were going, what's ahead of them in the queue, how far are their renders along. And, and actually interact with it. So say, uh, say Lindsay Lohan uh, goes into rehab or jail or both again, and her movie's <laughs> going to be delayed a few months. <laughs> I'm just picking that at random. It's not like that happened uh, today. <laughs> the, the, the guy who's managing the project can go literally into a SharePoint site and say, bump this down in priority. This stuff won't be needed for months now. And, <laughs> no. and sure enough, because it's all .NET, it's very easy for them to write a control that's just communicating with the Digipede server, bumping all that stuff down in priority so that, uh, you know, the Tom Cruise movie can get animated faster. New York never sleeps, so why should you? Introducing Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. Infusion Development, world-class Wall Street technology consultants and published SharePoint book authors wants to fly you to New York City free for the ultimate training weekend. They'll even put you up at a first-class hotel, though you probably won't see much of it. For two days and nights, you'll live SharePoint and Silverlight with training, collaboration, and even competition. You'll participate in lab-offs, which will test your speed and skills, ultimately deciding who moves on to the big mystery game show. The winner will receive Insomniac, the developer's computer that never sleeps. And trust me, it's awesome. You'll also be busy trading ideas with Microsoft MVPs and rubbing shoulders with Richard and me. Hey, if knowledge is power, we just offered you the mothership. Think you got what it takes? Apply now at infusion.com slash sleepless in NY. The deadline is Tuesday, August 14th, to apply for Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. So let's uh, recap Digipede Network's tools for um, for those who didn't hear the last show. Just give us the elevator speech about, about uh, how this is used. The elevator speech really is object-oriented programming for grid. If you can take a class and say, I want this class executed remotely, the Digipede network can can take the the objects from that class, serialize them, distribute them around to uh, nodes available on your grid. So you know this is this is software you're running on your own hardware. We're not we're not offering uh, a pile of servers for rent. It's it's software. But we'll take those objects, distribute them around your network, execute them, and then bring them back to you. So it so sounds you, a lot you, like remoting in .NET 1.0 and 1.1. Are you using WCF now? We're not using WCF in the release that's coming out right now, but we will release a WCF compatible. We'll start taking advantage of WCF in our next release. So you're basically doing it all yourselves? We're doing this all ourselves, Sockets yeah. and serialization? Uh, you, can do, you can either use the built-in serialization or you can, use, you can write custom serializers. We certainly have people who do both. Yeah. And, and the thing that it gives you uh, beyond just doing remoting by yourself is, as a developer, you never have to worry about which machines happen to be on the grid right now. You don't have to contact a specific machine and say, start a process over there. 
uh, the grid will handle that. So you have a lot of the uh, prioritization in that smarts built in. You don't even have to check and see, you know you don't have to micromanage the no the not at all prioritization and what happens when something fails when when one of your nodes goes down or if you're using cycle scavenging and someone you know starts using their computer again how does that work get reassigned to another machine you don't have to worry about any of that at all it all happens automatically in the background cool so what that allows the developer to do is to think about his uh, area of expertise if he's writing a finance application that developer is spending his time thinking about finance, not thinking about serialization, remoting, uh, nodes going down, any of those processes, how to handle eventing when something happens. All that is handled automatically. Wow. It sounds like you've done a lot of plumbing work that will be, would be beneficial in general just for people who are struggling with remoting. For it's very a- funny you would call it that because we say that all the time. We worry about the plumbing so you don't have to. Yeah. That's a standard .NET mantra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really a Microsoft approach to things. It's like, look, you know how to code this way. I don't want you to change the way you code. I'm just going to give it a new infrastructure to run in. So I imagine well, that- that's exactly right. And, and there hadn't been a tool. You know, I don't, I don't want to toot our own horn too much. But there hadn't been a tool that allowed the Microsoft developer, someone who's working on this platform, to take advantage of really many processors or many machines. Uh, even Microsoft, Microsoft themselves didn't have one. Uh, so now the, the developer, in the past, if a developer really wanted to use lots of machines, he was forced not only into a different operating system, but a completely different development paradigm. There's things like MPI, the message passing interface, and all sorts of really complex programming models. Now you don't have to do that. Your standard C Sharp or VB.net or heck VB developer can, can take advantage of hundreds of machines. I'm looking at some of these from the top 500.org site, some of these top supercomputers, which are just clustered Dells and things using special networking, InfiniBand networking and so on. But they're programming in C++ and C almost universally. Yeah, most of those things are are programming uh, using MPI, the message passing interface. They're using C or C++. and, and they're really doing scientific and technical computing. They are doing things like complex fluid dynamics. They're uh, simulating, as I said, you know, wing, wind over an airplane wing or explosions. Uh, you'll probably see a bunch of defense, a bunch of defense machines on that, on that yes. list. Yeah, like the top one, the blue gene solution is actually analyzing nuclear stockpiles. Right, exactly. So uh, maybe that, we really got to do backing up a notch here is say, what are the computing tasks that I should be gridding as a business? That's a great question to ask. Um, we like to say anything, that's, uh, anything that takes a long time is an opportunity for, for grid. And, and sometimes that's, that's a process that you can speed up a lot. There, there are some processes that, that take a long time. You might be able to break that down and run it on, on separate machines. But one place where we're seeing really increased pickup is in people who are, are trying to scale services, either as part of an SOA or part of a software-as-a-service offering. And what they've got is a scalability problem. They, they've got long-running analysis that they don't want bogging down their web servers. And so they're trying to improve the performance of their application by addressing scalability. Right, and the individual units of work are not so severe. There's just a lot of them. Right. Now, if, if you've got very small units of work, if you've got, you know, if you're doing tiny bits, uh, you guys actually recently had a show on ASP.NET scalability, right? Yeah. It was one, yeah. of, the, one of the sessions tech that I think panels. you did at TechEd, perhaps? Yeah, it was a panel. Right, yeah. And it was a great session. And, and uh, I listened to that, and those, obviously those people knew what they were talking about. Um, and one thing that didn't get addressed in the session was what if, as part of my, my application that I'm making available as a service, and again, maybe, maybe it's SOA or maybe it's behind a, a website, um, but what if, say, it's, it's a financial analysis calculation and my customers might come in and kick off a portfolio optimization algorithm that's going to run for 10 seconds or 10 minutes? What do I do about that thing? I don't want that running on my web server. I don't want my web server occupied doing, you know, number crunching 
and, and slowing down the performance of my entire system uh, for, for that long. And that's where grid computing comes in, because a grid allows you in a very small number of lines of code, say 20 lines of code, take that service and say, go run that on the grid. Go off to the compute farm. Leave the web server available to do its web serving. And when that answer comes back, then bring that answer back and, and hand it to the user. And Dan, some two things. One thing is, last time we talked, I believe we agreed that when something is gridable, it takes, uh, what was it? If it takes more time than it takes to travel across the network and back, right? Then that's gridable because right, you get the get the overhead. That's the real. Uh, yeah, when, when you get down to the crux of it, it, is, is what what's the overhead that will be introduced by by moving that around. And uh, how much do you gain? And the second thing was in this calculation uh, example, the financial calculation. I mean, that's math where you have this linear calculation. How how does the grid know how to split up that calculation that might take 10 minutes or so without having any kind of programmer input? How does it know the, how the to... The grid doesn't know how to do that. Um, we, we certainly don't have any magic to, to, to break up calculations. And, and there are some calculations we can't break up. Sometimes if it's purely linear, it's not looping or, or each loop is dependent on the outcome of the last loop, um, there's nothing we can do by magic to break that up. What we can do if this is being offered as a service is move that calculation to a machine that it's appropriate on. Take it off your web server and, and you know, move it, move it to a compute server, um, which, which is sometimes a big deal because that allows you to do a hundred of those calculations simultaneously. But you could do, arguably, you could do that with a, an asynchronous web service today. You could. You're going to have trouble uh, doing the CPU load balancing. Um, most load balancers are, are really network load balancers. They're good at balancing network load, um, but they're not necessarily good at detecting when uh, how, how to balance CPU load across many machines. I see. So one user doing one calculation on one machine on the back end is no problem, but you have a bunch of users doing 10-minute calculations. Now you need a grid to do that load balancing and, and prioritization. Exactly. I see. And, and in terms of parallelization, um, I would say probably a grand total of maybe none of our customers are really taking their algorithms and figuring out how to parallelize them. That's the kind of thing that's very, very difficult. That's the kind of say. thing that PhDs in computer science spend a lot of time trying to do. Well, and that's a real rethink of existing work. And, and, it, and you're not going to do it with existing tech. You're not going to do that in, in .NET. You're, you're going to have to go into a different programming paradigm. There's one Russian guy in, in New York named Lev who can do that. Exactly, yeah. You know, they're, know they're, they're, they're out there, but they're few and far between. Right. But what our customers almost always find they have is they have algorithms that they run over and over again. So if I'm a mortgage company and I'm analyzing risk on a mortgage, I don't know how to take the, the thing that, that looks at a mortgage and analyzes risk and make that run faster or break that up. But I'm analyzing thousands of mortgages per day. So my algorithm doesn't get parallelized. It's the data that's parallelized. Uh-huh. And, and, and I, I have a, a blog post called it's a, it's a Delightfully Parallel World. And, and that's the thing that all of our customers, as they look at it, whether it's rendering, they might not get a single frame rendered faster, but they've got thousands of frames to render. Sure. Or it's risk analysis. Or, uh, again, it's, it's hits to a website. They're not making any of those necessarily run faster, but they've got lots of them to deal with. And so it's the data that's parallel. And so you write a class that, say, analyzes one mortgage or renders one frame. And, and then you instantiate lots of those. You create an object for each frame or an object for each uh, mortgage you need to analyze. And the grid takes care of the rest. What about for reporting? Does this, uh, does this fall into the category? I mean, does this, do you ever run up against people who want to do reporting on a grid instead of having one big honking reporting server in a great big queue, have uh, several servers, and then allow the, your, your tool to do the load balancing? We have a few customers who are using it that way, um, and there's a couple interesting ones. We have one that's actually using, they use Excel, generates their reports, and they've got a grid with 100 nodes and literally Microsoft Excel. Lots of our customers use Excel on the front end to launch calculations, yeah. but uh, not as many of them use Excel on the back end. 
they've got uh, Excel installed on 100 grid nodes, and that is their report generation tool. Well, there's a good reason that a lot of people don't do that on the back end. Yeah, yeah. Excel is a, is a yeah. really, really tough piece of software to interact with. Uh, Server-wise, you know, you know I found that interface. the Office is not threaded correctly, and, and maybe you know Office 2007 is different, but... But I always found that you know the apartment threads are are just sort of that you know not in apartment threaded objects in web servers just never seem to get along very well. Yeah, it it, it takes a special touch to to work with Excel on the back end. Absolutely, yeah. and I and I hope they are improving it. But that's interesting stuff, though. Yeah, Excel is sort of, sort of the all purpose tool of IT. You know, business right. people. Right. If, if and and that's another reason that that many of our customers really like a Windows-based grid computing system. Because whether you're programming in COM or whether you're programming in .NET, there are easy ways to work with Excel. When, when Excel is on the front end, it's very easy to plunk uh, a, a DigiPeed uh, client right into an Excel spreadsheet and, and start calculations from there. Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, Maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast and compact and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a new monitor. So I see that a new version of Digipede is coming out um, next month, I guess. 2.0, yeah, can you tell us? Yeah, can you tell us about what's new in that? Well, we are uh, continuing to add features for the .NET developers specifically. Um, that's certainly where we're seeing our, our greatest pickup is people who are, are taking advantage of our .NET APIs. So we're already more designed for .NET developers than, than any other grid computing system. But we're, we're getting deeper and deeper into the stack and letting uh, some very complex use cases uh, take it, you know, happen on the grid. Uh, for example... Say you're a .NET developer and you want to do some debugging. Um, it's always been historically, no matter what sort of distributed computing you're doing, uh, very difficult to debug the, the distributed process. Well, we're, we're now uh, going to ship a Visual Studio add-in. So your developer right from within Visual Studio can not only launch the, uh, the application that starts on the grid, but can actually then debug the distributed process on his machine or on another machine right from within Visual Studio. Wow. And that's, that's a great, great tool for, for developers. You can imagine as you start to write these complicated pieces of software, they're going to run on hundreds of machines. Uh, debugging can become an issue. Seems like you're doing a lot of stuff that should be in the framework. Has Microsoft offered to buy you guys recently? <laughs> <laughs> if they had, do you think I could tell you that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any correct answer to that question. You know, I was just hoping that you'd be in a zombified state of drug-induced hypnosis or something right now, and you'd just <laughs> like to ruin your career on our show, which would be great for no, us. No, you know, the, the, the Microsoft guys uh, have been really good to work with, and the .NET team has been very good to work with. Uh, Microsoft love partners who enhance their offering, people who take what Microsoft is doing and, and add capability to it so that it addresses more customer needs. Right. Um, so they, the .NET team, the Visual Studio team, has been very helpful to us. We're actually on the uh, Visual Studio Integration Partners Advisory Council, um, and they do a lot of outreach to people like us, to, to ISVs who are working on their platform, you know, encouraging us. They help us with marketing. They help us with technical details. Uh, they give us fancy awards. It's, it's very rewarding. Now, what is, uh, how does, what's the relationship between Compute Cluster Server 
and your tool. And, you know, is there any crossover functionality? There is a bit of crossover f- functionality. The, the, the thing about Compute Cluster Server is, at its heart, it's an OS. And we run on top of, of course, on top of the Microsoft OSs and on top of, of .NET. So really, Compute Cluster Server is, is the Compute Cluster edition of the operating system, along with the tools that allow that uh, scientific and technical computing. Um, you know, they've got the Compute Cluster Pack that has an MPI stack that allows the remote direct memory access. Um, and as I said before, it's really aimed at, at the, the scientific and technical computing that was happening on Unix and, and later Linux. I see. So what we do on top of that is really bring .NET into the fold. So if you're not developing an MPI application in C, but instead of developing enterprise applications in .NET, Compute, Compute Cluster Server is, is a good OS, but doesn't add much in terms of capability. How do you take advantage of that 64-node cluster? Really? In .NET? So, so CCS doesn't have the kind of .NET interface that Digipede has? N- not at all. In fact, CCS has a .NET interface that lets you, you know, monitor and control and start command line applications. But as far as taking a .NET application and running that .NET code across the cluster... Um, it doesn't have tools for that. It wasn't designed for that. Yeah. That's not. That's not the point. CCS right, exactly. is about. It's not, it's not like it's a, a failure. It's just that's not what people do in clusters. So it's not what they set out to create. Right. Yeah, you're right. Now our the customers now are frequently when they need to enlarge their grid, they're buying clusters. They're buying a rack of servers, thirty-two, sixty-four servers, and they're getting compute cluster edition on that uh, rack of servers. It's a little easier to administer. They've got some good administration tools. Um, and the other thing is, it's a lot cheaper than Server 2003. Ah, interesting. And would that look like one node of your grid, a cluster? No, no, no. It would, it would look like 64 nodes on our grid. Oh. oh. So, so, you know, as far as the grid is concerned, they just added 64 nodes, and they're probably dual proc, so it adds 128 processors to the grid. So we, we understand that they're nodes. Now, we do interoperate with, with Compute Cluster Server. And, and when you put the Digipeda agent on those nodes, you can tell the agent, hey, just so you know, you're on a compute cluster node. So use this thing to your full ability. But if, if, when, if someone tries to schedule a job using compute cluster server, say that they're actually going to do some scientific or technical computing, our agent can, can monitor that and say, oh, you know what? I'm not available for Digipede right now because I'm working on compute cluster stuff. And when, and when that goes away, then it can say, okay, I'm, I'm available for Digipede again. So we do have some interoperability between the two systems. But just recognizing that they're different jobs. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I got to think that this is made for Blade servers. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it really is made for Blade servers because Blade servers really let you take advantage of that space in, 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 your, uh, in your data center in a, in a much better way. We have customers yeah. who really want to add nodes to their grid right now and literally... They can't because the data center is full and it's a six month project in order to try and move servers around and, and, and cram more stuff in the data center. And all of a sudden, when you start putting blades in instead of one use, you can fit so many more machines into that space that, uh, it really gives you the ability to put a lot more computing power in your data center. I imagine there are some listeners that, um, are not as IT minded as, as, as Richard and you and, and even me, but, uh, so for them, blades are essentially uh, servers that exist on these little slide-out cards. And you just sort of, for like, what is it, a four-rack space, Richard? You can yeah, put so I'm like thinking like a PowerEdge 1955. You're talking blades. seven U's, ten machines. Nice. Yeah, and they just slide in and lock in. And, uh, you know, a whole machine goes down. You can take that thing right out and service it plug it right back in. And really, they, they, they let you address that density problem. They let you put more machines in less space. They can handle the heat. You know, uh, blades have, have a lot of technology in them for, for cooling those machines because, of course, as you pack machines in there, heat and, and power are two big concerns. But they let you get a lot more bang for the buck where buck isn't a dollar because blades aren't necessarily cheap. No. where the, the, the resources that are premium in space in the data center. Yeah, your, your dollar per uh, megahertz or your dollar per gigabyte or your dollar per U is definitely higher right. in a blade, but it is all about saving space. Right, and, yeah. and like I said, when we have customers who are getting into the hundreds, and, and this year we'll have 
two customers who pass into the thousands of processors on their grid. Wow. Nice. Um, space becomes an issue. Space becomes a big issue. Is there any limit to the size of a grid? Not that we've found yet. Uh, I, I can't wait to discover the size. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a very, very scalable tool. tool. Um, and as I said, we'll have two customers that pass into the thousands this year, and uh, there are no scalability problems whatsoever so far. With just two nodes on the grid, can you, uh, can you find an increase in performance? It depends on what sort of uh, application you're trying to speed up. Um, if, if you've got a, a unit of work that's only going to last for, you know, in the tenths of seconds, probably not. But, you know, if you've got, if you say you're doing rendering and each frame is taking 10 minutes to render, then you can do two frames in 10 minutes instead of one. You're going to see a, a huge difference. Right. Yeah, they say in, just as an aside, in Vegas, uh, they say that it takes like four machines to actually start seeing real speed benefit because the overhead of stitching those files together and using the network and things like that with rendering was a lot of data. Well, you know, that, that's one of those things that um, there, there's post-processing that has to occur on one machine. Right. And, and in fact, by splitting it up, you've increased the amount of post-processing right. because if it was happening simply on one machine, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to stitch together at all. Plus, video is a lot of data. I mean, I imagine, you know, as we said before, the SETI at home thing is, is probably a really good uh, y- y- example because the data set is pretty small, but the computing that has to happen on that data is huge. Well, yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, although, uh, Richard, you were a big uh, SETI at home guy, right? Yeah, I, I got over it. So, yeah, but how big were those? Do you, do you know the, the, the work units that were sent out? How big were those? They, they were about 100K each. So you send out 100K, you compute for 24 hours. Yeah. Depending, yeah. On the, depending on the, the machine. The compute to byte ratio there is, is, you know, I mean, really, when did SETI at home start? A lot of people were on dial-up back then. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was a thing, you, you know, it made sense to distribute that through a straw. Well, it, and, and it was, and they were smaller. They got bigger. They started out very small. You know, the funny thing about SETI at home was it was too successful. They ran out of data to process, so they actually wrote more complex algorithms to do more detailed analysis and reprocess the entire workload that they'd done over two or three years. Right. And right. then because of the increased computing power, and of course, my experience with SETI at home was it started out where I was doing one or two units a week. But when I finally shut down, my best machines were doing 16 a day. So just to clarify, SETI, S-E-T-I, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yep. They take uh, transmissions that are received through radio telescopes, uh, boil the data down, and send it out to people via the Internet. And when their screensaver kicks in, it starts churning through that data to find, you know, little green men. So, And in some senses, projects like that were an inspiration for us because we looked at that and we said, now, how can you create a general purpose tool? So that anybody who has a lot of uh, development needs, a lot of analysis needs, how can they take advantage of lots of machines? Yeah. Now we're not, you know, we don't have a million clients on a million desktops across the the country, but you know, our customers are in enterprises where they might have hundreds of machines, they might have thousands of machines, they might be using dedicated resources in the data center, or we do have customers who are using hundreds of desktop machines. Yeah, right. They could use their the uh, the business machines in the in the enterprise at night, for example. Oh, do. yeah, we have customers who use them at night. We have customers who use them all day long in the background. That's interesting. That could be very interesting. And I imagine the 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 security and IT challenges around that and deployment, you know, might be might be an issue with firewalls. Absolutely, and things like I, that. we we don't have, for example, none of the finance customers are, are using uh, what we call cycle scavenging. They're keeping their their data in the data center. Uh, but people who are doing less secretive uh, stuff certainly is happening. Yeah, Richard um, used to have a coffee warmer that was connected to his uh, water cooling. That So when the uh-huh. CPU got hot, the water would flow through this coffee warmer. And anytime his coffee got cold, he'd just run a couple of SETI at home work units. Yep, just warmed it right up. <laughs> oh, well, I've, definitely I've seen the, the blog heat. post pictures. I've seen the, the water-cooled uh, <laughs> machines over there. Uh, seem to cause somewhat of a mess sometimes, huh? Uh, there, there, sometimes there are issues. Once in particular, I think. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. 
ActorReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So, uh, what about you, Dan? What are the, what are some of the geeky things that you do? I mean, um, I know that, you know, you're involved in Digipede and everything, but, uh, you know, Richard's got his water cooled PCs and his, you know, what, what's the other X10 wired his home and you, you must be into gadgets and geeky no, things. No, I, well. I have to admit, when I, when I leave work, when I'm at work, I do, uh, you know, I, I, I think about computing a lot. I think about grid computing. You know, I do my work. I also blog about grid computing. Uh, westcoastgrid.blogspot.com, get a plug-in. But when I leave work, uh, I'm more likely to be playing with my dog than uh, playing with a computer. So you're all business. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, my dog has a blog, too. Ah, nice, dog blog. Uh, better use of cores in this version, eh, you say? Yeah, better use of cores. So when, you, when you've when you written your, say you've got a, some, a .NET class that you're going to be distributing, um, there's now just a... a uh, method, or sorry, a property that you set, you say, just run this per core, one line of code, and all of a sudden you are able to take advantage. Each, each machine, of course, knows how many cores it has. So when it sees those objects, it will just say, oh, I'm an eight-core machine. I'm going to take eight of those. Um, a a single-core machine is going to take one. And so from a developer's perspective, all you did was change one line of code, and you are now able to effectively use the cores on all your machines. Again, it's one of those very simple things from a developer's perspective. Right. But the increased productivity on the back end uh, can be huge. And we don't make the developer worry about that. You're not writing any code to contact that machine and say, now, what kind of machine are you? And are you hyper-threaded? And what sort of cores do you have? It all happens automatically. So you change the line of code, and, and there it goes. Or say you start buying new machines, and your, your old machines used to be four core, your new ones are eight. You don't have to change code at all. That, that'll happen automatically. Um, are there any ISVs running your stuff, running Digipede? We, we actually have about four ISVs uh, that are basically grid-enabling their software. And, and only one of them has, has announced this to the public so far. They're called Fourth Story. They do some crazy, uh, what's called genetic algorithms. Are you guys familiar with genetic algorithms? Why, yes, I am, but then uh, I'm you? kind of a so nut. Maybe we better explain it for everybody else. Yeah, starting with me. I'm, I probably so, heard it. Uh, some... You know, genetics, the idea in, in genetics is you combine the, the genomes of two organisms and uh, you've got offspring, and sometimes that offspring is better than its parents. Well, genetic algorithms kind of work the same way. They take their algorithms and they find some way to quantify them, and they, they run, and Fourth Story does risk analysis. So say you've got something you want to analyze risk, they'll run different algorithms against the data set to find you know, what the, whatever the least risky or, or the right amount of risk is. Well, then they take those algorithms and they combine them. They take the best of the best and they combine them. And mm. they run all their data through the, the resulting algorithm. And then they do that again and they do that again, generation after generation. Yeah, the, another name for them is evolutionary algorithms. Although you're talking well, about a particular technique called recombination, where you're taking two different successful results and seeing does the combined result make a more successful result. So what ends up happening is amazing amounts of analysis in order to do this, because you don't just run your analysis once, you don't just run it twice, you run it hundreds and thousands of times. So fourth story now, uh, they have, when you buy their software, you can buy it and run it on one machine, or you can buy it and you can say, I've got a grid. And you just point the software at the grid, and it will do those hundreds of thousands of iterations across as many machines as you put on your grid. It sort of reminds me of neural networks when that was in fashion. And I know that neural networks are like the one of the best unkept secrets of, uh, or best kept secrets of stockbrokers and, uh, you know, people who look at probabilities of predicting future events. What, uh, do you, do you guys have any customers who are doing anything with neural networks? We do have customers that are doing stuff in neural networks, and uh, we've got some in finance, and I believe we have some in, uh, oh, I'll say verticals we're not allowed to talk about and okay. let you uh, ponder from there. Sure. Because I imagine that would be a nice marriage. Um, 
neural networks just running on a neural network just running on one computer is impressive. I can't imagine on a huge grid. I mean, it's just the more times you iterate through that, uh, through the data, the the more accurate it can get. I imagine. Well, one thing that we're seeing is is we're definitely seeing the most the most increase. I mean, the, sorry, the most uptake is happening in uh, finance, and the reason we think that we're seeing most is in finance. Now, you know, enterprise computing happens in all different verticals, but the thing that distinguishes finance is for them more compute power translates directly to money. Right. Not indirectly, but absolutely directly. Right. If they're, you know, optimizing portfolios or analyzing risk, if they can do that faster and better than their competition, they make more money that day. Yeah. And so this is where we're seeing people really, uh, not just adopted, it's not just where we have the most customers, but it's where we have our fastest growing customers. Uh, we have a customer who, who started on a grid of 10 nodes, and they were just running one application for, for uh, probably about six months. And then another uh, department said, hey, how are you doing it? How is that stuff working so fast? And they said, oh, we've got this grid. So then they, they, they bumped up to 30 nodes. They started running another application. And then they bought 100. And then they bought 200 more. And now they're, they're I don't know where they are, 600 maybe. And this is one of the customers that will be over 1,000 this year. And at the start of this year, they had, I'd say, 30. Now, if they're going blades, I mean, just get your head around the scope of what you're talking here. Like that, that Dell 1955 will get you 60 servers per 42U rack, each one handling probably eight processors. So 720 processors in a rack. But to get to 1,000, you're talking about, what, 18 42U racks? Well, it's a little worse than that because, of course, they're not buying all new hardware. They're, they're starting with, with, with hardware that they already own. So it's going to take them a lot of rack space. And that's what I mean, that sometimes it really is a how can we get more stuff in the, in, into the data center and how do we get new hardware approved by the, you know, it's a big company, approved by the uh, purchasing company, purchasing people who have to approve everything and how do we get this certified by the IT department there's there's a lot of, of moving pieces in order to to get the scope of purchase uh, approved. So right now they're you know they're by hook or by crook they're they're grabbing existing hardware, they're buying new hardware, they're shifting other servers around so they can get new racks. It's it's uh, pretty crazy. Dan, let's talk for a minute about basic implementation. I'm a developer. I've got this object. I want this object to be on the grid. Do I have to use your base classes? Do I have attributes? Do I make special the, calls? The what do I do? The primary way people are doing that is we do have a couple different uh, development patterns, but the primary way is derive a class from one of our classes. So um, we, we've got a class called the worker class, and that's the, the simplest implementation. Um, lets you just A worker class knows how to distribute itself, basically. So you take your class and uh, derive it from the worker class, and you override one virtual method. Um, and after you create instantiate objects from that class, you, you basically we have a, a, a client object. You'll instantiate our client object and just hand them hand your object to the client object. It'll, by default, use .NET serialization, distribute that out. It will also, of course, if you're working in .NET, determine all the binaries that need to move. So, you know, we, we use .NET Reflection to say, what executables or DLLs need to need to move around in order to work on this machine? Yeah, and by I mean to work on this object. And by the way, should those be cached? Are we going to use these objects over and over again? Okay, it'll move the DLLs, it'll serialize the object, distribute it out to an available machine, instantiate it there, and there invoke the the virtual method that you uh, have overridden. Your object will do all its work, and then if if you do want the results to come back to you, then it'll do it all in reverse, stream it back to you. Uh, raise an event in your application and say, "Hey, this object's done, and here it is, and hand it to you." That's very cool. What What about the case where you have a, a base class already that you can't uh, you can't change? Say, For now, say a you just throw a wrapper around that class. You just create a wrapper class, okay. derive that from our worker, and and give that thing a uh, a property that is yours. Although you you did in your question, you hit on on another way that we're we're going to do this, which is an attribute based way of doing it. Nice. So uh, in some future version, it's not clear if it'll be the next one or not. Um, you'll just throw an attribute on your class. You'll throw an attribute on your on your method you want called, and that'll be it. Yeah, I, I love attributes for that kind of stuff. It's unobtrusive. 
it, it really is the way to go. Now, we've, we started designing the system oh, in 2003, um, and we have certainly been uh, enhancing it all the time, but there's always more enhancements that, that you, you want to do, and, and attributes have really become the, the way to do something like this. So we will yeah. we'll definitely add that. But we always say it's, it's about 20 lines of code to go from uh, not running on DigiPeed at all to running on DigiPeed complete with eventing and, and having the object pass back to you. That's awesome. 20 lines of code, and you can be running on a grid. Very cool. And uh, just briefly, um, pricing. I know that you have like a, a free evaluation kit that gives you two nodes or something like that for a non-production yeah, environment. We call it the developer edition, and, and some people use it for evaluation, but our, our customers use it as well. Developer edition lets you install the whole thing on a desktop, the server, an agent, the, the SDK, and, and, and we always let you put one more processor on that grid as well so you can see a little bit of distribution. But that lets a developer just working on one machine get the whole kit and caboodle working. Uh, that's free. Anyone can have that. Go to the website, fill out a form, uh, Um We'll give you developer edition. Uh, the pricing, as you, as you go into commercial terms and you want to you buy this, is we, we price per processor. And it's $200 per processor per year. Now, that's not per core? It's not per core. It's per processor. We're trying to match Microsoft. Uh, and when Microsoft does per processor pricing, say for something like SQL Server, their pricing is per socket. It's not per core. So if you get so an eight, even though we let you take advantage of cores, we're only charging per socket. Nice. So if you have an eight core machine, you basically got eight times the value. Hey, absolutely. Nice. And and the the team edition, which is the the small edition, starts at a, a five node license. So really a thousand bucks. And we do have customers who who only have five or ten machines on their network. You know, sometimes doing something ten times faster is fast enough. And we do have customers that have ten-node grids. Uh, you know, it's a couple thousand bucks, and they get much, much uh, increased power. And it's a one-time fee, royal, royalty-free, that kind of thing? That's not true. No? <laughs> it's, it's per year. We do license per year. Oh, per year. year. Okay. Yeah. That's good. I mean, it's still incredible value. It's, it's uh, almost an order of magnitude cheaper than any competition. And there's no competition, really, that, that focuses on .NET. Very good. Now, we're going to be doing a real demo of this on DNR TV coming up here pretty soon. We don't have an exact Yeah, we're going to, we're going to throw a, a grid uh, onto some hardware over there, and I'm going to show you some of this code. The, the 20 lines of code thing isn't an exaggeration. I love to give code demos because I can say 20, line of, 20 lines of code till I'm blue in the face. But when I show it to you and when a developer sees it, they say, Wow. Cool. Now, what kind of demo are you going to be showing, just to wet the appetite? I often, when I do demos like this, I do a couple different things. First of all, I start from scratch. I, I will write a, a simple grid application starting from you know a brand new project in Visual Studio, and and do something very easy like multiply a couple of numbers. But I want that to happen on every every machine right. on my grid, and it, you know I keep it it's kind of skeleton and bare bones because it 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 shows you exactly what the digipede parts are right. how do i you know what do i do to my object what do i do to submit this job and what do i do to to have events raised when things happen uh, I, those are my um, favorite kind of demos because the the worst thing is when you're trying to figure out something implementation wise you want the simplest demo that you can possibly find and right it's hard to find exactly those and, and we ship out by the way like when we install our our uh framework sdk it comes with i think nine different code samples nine different development patterns that's great and those development of the samples calculate a value for pi. Ah, nice. Very simple, very simple algorithm. And the whole point is to get the developer to look at the development pattern, not the content. So then, after I give a demo like that, then usually what I do is show something interesting. Right. Show something that looks good, whether that's Mandelbro generation or, or something cool behind Excel. Uh, generally, you like to show something that, okay, now you understand the mechanics. You know, you've seen how an internal combustion engine works. Let's look at a Ferrari. Yeah. And that's going to be coming up on DNR TV, which if you don't know about DNR TV, it's a weekly uh, screencast, the interview that I do with various guests. And uh, you can actually get to see people write the code and talk about it at the same time. Um, so that'll be that. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, that that's going to be coming up here soon. We don't have an exact date as I'm, I'm talking about. Dan, anything that we missed? In this whole discussion, did we did we cover everything you wanted to cover? Uh, did did we mention Innovation Partner of the Year? That was the first <laughs> thing we mentioned, as a matter of fact. 
<laughs> I don't get tired of that. I don't get tired of looking at the uh, at the trophy either. Um, That's quite an uh, achievement. I, I think we've hit the things we want to. You know, one thing I, I did want to say is is it came up in an email that that we sent to each other. Um, the Microsoft Partner Program uh, is a, a huge program. You know, Microsoft runs a lot of things. If you are an ISV and you're developing software for this platform, uh, you should look at the Microsoft Partner Program. There are a ton of benefits from help with marketing, things like white papers, to great access to people at Microsoft. When I, I found a bug in Excel Services last year, and I had a, a guy, one of the developers in Excel Services, uh, sending me emails within minutes. Um, the, so if, you, if you're an ISV and you're developing software on this platform, Look into the partner program. They really, really have some uh, some great tools. And it's not a technical thing necessarily. You do you get access to it, but just as a company, you should look at the partner program. There are a lot of benefits. That's great. Good to know. All right, and with that, uh, our guest has been Dan Cerulli from Digipede Technologies. Digipede Networks is the tool, and uh, what's the website where they can see that? That's www. Write those down. <laughs> Digipede.net. Excellent. Uh, .com will work too, of course, but we, we're .net people. All right, Dan, I'm looking forward to that DNR TV. And until then, thanks thanks again for, for informing us about your new stuff. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you too. And we'll talk to you next time on .net Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.